Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Guys, this is going to be hard. we got to talk about Grandpa. He's verbally, he's forgetting things. He's asking people to repeat themselves. He keeps talking about taking people's questions. Something's not right. <laughs> Grandpa Muller. Oh, God. That poor bastard. Five hours of that nonsense. He's Ugh. 75. He's 70. He's, well, he looked all Showed of 75. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, welcome back, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hi. Hi. Uh, before we get started, all of the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys uh, like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, things you want us to talk about, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try you can find on Untapped uh, on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. And uh, for our new listeners, as well as our returning listeners, uh, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, super fun. Uh, again, with uh, the election coming up, uh, all the Democratic uh, contenders are, are moving up and down in the, uh, in the markets. Um, so keep a close eye on that. Try and make some money off of that. Um, we certainly try to. I wonder if the impeachment markets are going to move at all today because mm-hmm. of the Mueller testimony. I, I didn't look this afternoon, but I bet there was some. I, I, we could talk about whether I, they might go. They might go down. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah. I might have to try that. But what's great for you guys? Quick segue. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners who use the promo link when opening up a new account will receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Uh, so, for example, if you open up a $20 account, Predicted will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Um, all you have to do is use the promo link, like I said, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20, uh, and check it out. It's it's a lot of fun. <sighs> Muller time. Grandpa Muller. <laughs> oh, I felt so bad. <laughs> He just—it was a—it was five hours. It was it a was a five long, hours. It was a long five hours. So, all right. Of course, we have to start today with the testimony of former special counsel Robert Mueller. He testified for that full five hours in front of both the House Judiciary and the Intelligence Committees. Mueller was a man of few words and did not engage in many of the questions. I think it was—they said two hundred and six questions that he didn't answer. Yes, he only asked to repeat about a hundred of those questions. <laughs> right, or he would in, instead direct the questioner to the report itself. Uh, at times his answers were halting and he didn't look as sharp as he has in other venues. 
As the hearing wore on and the second party became more combative with Republicans who were critical of the investigation, Democrats were successful in getting Mueller to acknowledge that Trump was wrong in his claims that the report totally exonerated him. Yet it's far from clear whether Mueller's testimony will impact the broader debate about the Russian intervention in the 2016 campaign and accusations that Trump obstructed justice, all of which is central to the question of, of impeachment. Phil, a truly extraordinary day. Uh, what was your reaction as, as the day's events played out? Um, so I just to start, I, I pulled up the predicted markets yeah. while you were while you were talking, and it, it, the, for the last week, the odds of impeachment in Trump's first term um, had been climbing. They climbed from fourteen cents to twenty cents, and then by noon today, they were back down to fourteen cents. Okay, <laughs> they easily lost a third of its value in the cur- in the course of the first four hours of testimony. Somebody should let Nancy Pelosi know. <laughs> So I, I'm curious to I'm I'm curious to talk with you because I, I haven't you know it's because this just happened yeah. I haven't really had a chance to to talk about it much, uh, you know I was saying before we came on that the um, the the pundits all the people who are you know the, the the whatever political talking class all seems to think this was bad all around like Vox does their you know winners and losers thing and they put one out and it was all losers <laughs> like everyone <laughs> lost um, <laughs> but I, you know there were lots of people I chat Todd was talking about how this was disaster and I, I'm a little surprised by that like I, I feel like that's partly a response to what we have come to expect from these things which is we expect like this big I don't know this big um, you know show and dance or whatever and and it was it was in, in terms of procedure, it was boring. It was an old man answering, you know, yes and no questions. He was being very tactical about what he said, being very careful about what he said. We knew that's how he was going to do it. But when I step back and look at the substance, there, there was not particularly anything new in the substance that wasn't in the report. But the format of a congressional hearing with someone, there were a couple of instances, the, you know, Adam Schiff and his in his five minutes of questions at the beginning of the afternoon session and, and Nadler in the morning as well. There were a few times where somebody just essentially walked through. Is this fact true? Is this true? Is this true? And it's pretty damning when you see it just lined up like that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that, you know, I was thinking about who's going to be persuaded by this, by by today's you know, hearings and, you know, Republicans have made up their mind. I heard Democrats have made up their mind, but I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm reluctant to say this didn't do anything, which is what people seem to think. I think we don't know that. We don't know what this is going to do. The, the number of people who might have thought that Trump was doing something bad, but weren't sure how big of a deal it was, might have been persuaded by this people who, you know, there, there could be people who are sort of undecided. There are people who haven't heard, you know, seeing Mueller say it might have made a difference. I think it's too early to say that it doesn't matter or that it's not going to not going to do anything. I, I'm really curious to see what impact it does, which sound bites actually catch on, which ones, you know, if, if we're still talking about this in a couple of days or if it's dead. I don't know. What, I mean, what do you guys think? If we're, it's a great question, because we're think if you think about this as politics, as theater, it wasn't necessarily a great day because Robert Mueller was not dynamic. He was there reluctantly. Uh, I heard somebody describe it. It's like trying to put a cat in a suit, right? You know, he didn't want to be there. <laughs> uh, he wasn't going to perform. And and so if, if you're thinking about theatrically, it wasn't very compelling. But in terms of substance, yeah. uh, just uh, you know, like the report itself, there was a lot of really damning questions. Uh, as, as we talked about, uh, the shift questioning was really, really important. 
But I don't know what's going to catch on. It's the beauty of us taping literally like an hour after it's over. Uh, we'll see over the next couple of days. Um, I, I don't Nick, what was your... Yeah, I, I mean, it's. I, I go back and forth on this. It's. I, I think there was an element of the Democratic Party that thought there was going to be some sort of moment in there, you know, at some point in the five to six hours um, that was going to change the narrative somehow. And then there were other... Uh, uh, proponents that thought, yeah, realistically, this isn't necessarily about a, a smoking gun or some sort of aha moment. It was about getting the information out there to people who didn't read the report, which is the vast, vast majority yeah. of people in the country. Including also, members of Congress. Yes. Uh, yeah, probably half or three quarters of Congress as well. And the FBI director, he was testifying in front of Congress yes. a couple days ago, and somebody asked him if he read the report, and yeah. he said no. Yeah, <laughs> it's insane. Yes. But regardless, I, I think that kind of speaks to just the unnecessary nature of it in the sense of the people who you're going, if you think that anyone in just middle-class American culture is going to spend five hours listening to this testimony, um, it's not going to happen. And I get it. You're putting the information out there in, in what you perceive as the most distilled version possible, as close to the report as possible. If they're not going to listen to you, they're going to go to the places where they're getting their information anyways, which is the major news outlets, who are going to spin it anyways. Or social media. Which or, they were doing yeah. it five minutes after the testimony was over. So I, I, this was this was nothing in my... It didn't change I, anyone's opinion. How, then the question is, is it, how much of this is on Robert Mueller, right? So I, th I got the sense from Mueller, both at his previous press conference and today, that he was saying, read my damn report. Right. I explain it all there for you. And then in today, his testimony was kind of, it referred to the report. Please read the report, please. And, and he did not go into detail. He could have been, he could have, to draw a historical comparison, he could have been Ken Starr, who came and made the case for impeachment. Mueller right. wasn't going to play that game. I mean, do we hold him accountable for not selling this? Or is it just that we're idiots, right? I mean, I mean, do we say well, Mueller was right, right to just give us the information? How could he not? Where we're, I mean, we are idiots, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, what the Democrats were doing today, it felt like the Democrats kept walking him up to this point where they wanted him to say, they even asked him, right, is this an impeachable offense, right? They, they, and, and I think what Mueller is saying is, look, I've laid the whole damn thing out for you, right? Then you're, it's your decision right. about whether this is an impeachable offense or not. And I, the, the Democrats wanted him to go that extra step, and he's not going to do that. And so... I mean, are we idiots? The answer, I think, is is yes, right? We we have the information there. Democrats should have been running with this if they think it matters mm -hmm. a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, there, there's another question, which is this is also, or the other part of your question is this is also the political culture we're in. And if and if Robert Mueller thinks that this is impeachable, he's still playing by these kind of 1980s rules of Washington, not by, and, and I don't I don't know on that one. That's a harder thing for me to say. Should he abandon the old, like, you know, I am I am nonpartisan, I'm unbiased, I'm here serving the, you know, the government, um, or does he, you know, if he really feels strongly about this, does he have to adapt in some way to the fact that that's, that's not how Washington works now? Um, I, I'm, I'm torn between feeling like he did the right thing and feeling like, well, he's, this is dumb. If he feels strongly about it, he has to adapt. I, I mean, isn't I, 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 you know, I don't necessarily agree with 100% of the report. We'll say 95% of the report. But I, I like it's it's relatively endearing to me, regardless of the fun we, you know, I make of, of him. 
um, that he does still play by those rules. And realistically, like you said, Phil, this is this is laid at the feet of Congress at this point. You, you have the information, and it's your duty to do something with it at this point. They wanted a sacrificial lamb that they could point to so they didn't have to be responsible for what comes next. At some point, someone's going to have to do something quote-unquote principle that isn't going to be politically favorable for them. And they, they don't want to do it. Nancy Pelosi most of all. Right, right. I, I think that the Democrats, to fill both your points, the Democrats were hoping that Mueller would take that step today to give them the sound bites where they could say, see, Robert Mueller said he should be impeached, but he wasn't going to do that. Mm-hmm. I think he probably could have gone a little closer to the line. I think he was a little too Sleepy. restrained. <laughs> yes, because it was all yes or no. He didn't want to read from the report. And this is his work. And at some point, it's not just doing the work. You also have to sell the work a little bit. And he could have done a bit more of that. But again, I blame the American public holds a lot of culpability here for not paying attention. Members of Congress do as well. It's it's a sad state of affairs. And I'll say all this. like When you read that obstruction of justice section of the Mueller report, it is damning. Mm-hmm. It's hard to walk away from that and say the president shouldn't be held accountable for that. In, in the report and in the testimony today, he, he gets as close to saying he should be impeached as he can get without saying that, right? right. And so it, that's the, it's, it's another, when you listen to the, the legal, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but you listen to the legal experts on, on, on TV who are talking about this, and one after the other all basically says to, a, to an attorney, to a prosecutor, like what he's saying, like drawing the connections, like reading between the lines, is not difficult, right? What it is, you know, when he says essentially, so the the other part of this, I think where where we've we've talked about how, you know, you were saying, Nick, that no normal person is gonna watch five hours of testimony. And you're exactly right, especially five hours of sort of boring testimony, alternating between these like yes or no questions from Democrats and kind of crazy speeches about, you know, how it's a, a deep state conspiracy from Republicans. I, you know, I'm a, I, I love this stuff. I didn't even watch all five hours. Mm-hmm. But I think what will matter is what of those within those five hours, there are a handful of exchanges. And that's the thing that is going to in the culture that, that it's dumb that that's the case, right? That there's a massive report that nobody's reading. There's five hours of testimony that most people won't listen to. It'll come down to a couple of those clips. And one of them started making the rounds today, which was the the exchange between Ted Lieu mm-hmm. um, where he basically says, I think I actually have the exchange here. Let me see if I can read the exact exchange. While you're looking he at it. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, while, while you're doing that, I think Trump was smart because it wasn't long after the testimony we were talking about before we went on air. He was out answering questions, and he's trying to drive the narrative. And mm-hmm. Trump, is, if he's good at one thing, it is sticking to the narrative and pounding this down and saying this is a disaster. And then inevitably, that's going to be one of the headlines. Trump says right. this is a total disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, go ahead, Phil. So, yeah, the, the Lou exchange is essentially the, the reason you did not indict Donald Trump is because of the OLC decision. So the Office of Legal Counsel, which says the president can't be indicted. So Lou says the reason you didn't indict President Tr- Donald Trump is because of the OLC decision. Is that correct? And Mueller says that is correct. So the implication there is the only reason he didn't bring charges against Donald Trump is because Donald Trump is president and he can't do that under the OLC. Now. Later in the afternoon, in the afternoon testimony, Mueller went back and clarified that and basically said that's not what he was intending to say. He wasn't intending to say that if that OLC decision wasn't there, he would have have brought charges. He made it clear that the decision was to not make a decision about whether charges should be brought. 
But even though he clarified that, that's the thing that's yeah. going around, that exchange, right? And so it's one of those where, yeah, Trump's getting his sound bites out. That's the sound bite that's going to go around. And, and, you know, which of these and this, it, it's, it's pains me that that's the culture yeah. that we live yeah. in, sort of which sound bite is sort of wins out. But it feels like in the middle of those, you know, five hours there, again, if that Adam Schiff exchange is the one that kind of comes out, then that will shape things. And I, I think that's un- I think that's still unpredictable at this point, which of those kind of, you know, holds on. The other thing. So the other. Yeah, you're talking about the exchange with Adam Schiff. There was this where he was asking the question, uh, asking Mueller and Mueller seemed a little more talkative with Schiff than with others. And he asked him, you know, what was the exchange of whether uh, uh, Trump was knowing of this information? And, yeah, he knew what was going on. He knew that they wanted Trump to win. Uh, that and that is they, general, generally accurate. Yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> and then that they and then, you know, Schiff says and they lied about that. And he says, yes, I think it was maybe a yes or something. So he could have, you know, that. That could be a damning little clip that goes around if Mueller adds just a little bit more. The, the other one was the, the the one where he asked about uh, working with accepting stuff from WikiLeaks. Was that a, a, yes. a, something to be concerned about? And they actually got – Mueller was reluctant to say anything, but they got him to say basically that, y- yes, I generally – yes, we should be concerned about that. He used so. a podcast word. He said it was problematic. Was problematic. <laughs> yes. The other thing that I think about as, as we sort of kick this around a bit – is while this was important, and obviously it was important for Mueller to go in front of Congress and the American public, what really mattered wasn't so much today, but it was that initial press conference by uh, Bill Barr, where he provided that initial summary of the Mueller report, because we haven't really gotten past that. In that initial summary, he talks about there was no evidence of collusion and there was no obstruction, right? That was the critical moment for setting the narrative, and the Democrats have struggled ever since then to chip away at that. Uh, and so the power of, of Bill Barr in all of this this whole drama is, is really important. Uh, this is also where I, I feel like Democrats are dumb. Um, yeah. <laughs> for, you can take 15 of, minutes on that one. <laughs> for a number of reasons. But it feels like as I don't know, I feel like if you look back for the past 15 years, Democrats have been essentially really concerned with what Republicans think about. Like they're concerned about the attacks that are going to come from Republicans. And like those attacks are going to come no matter what. And, and this feels a little bit like that, where they're playing by the Republican rule book. And just forget that crap, right? If people think, if people have bought into the no collusion, no obstruction, whatever, um, then those people are lost to this cause anyway, mm-hmm. right? They need to be making their case and laying out the arguments for the person, for the, you know, 55% of the population that, that may be persuaded by, you know, that either already believes this or may be persuaded by this. And and the, the overarching concern with how people are going to perceive them as overly aggressive or, you know, overreaching, it's, it, it, I don't understand that mentality or that approach to things. Especially when you think about the nature of the questions from the Republicans today. The, a lot of those Republicans were in full-on conspiracy theory, and it was, it was entertaining. It will make for some good sound bites on Fox News and Breitbart and, and whatnot, and there won't be any negative cost to that, right? Yeah. Uh, they can get away with that. And they were, I thought the... The Republicans, while I don't think they were completely honest in all of their accusations, they were very good, yes. uh, especially Nunez and some of the other ones uh, in, in attacking the process instead of attacking uh, the claims in the investigation. Mm-hmm. Well, their strategy was pretty clear to me. If, as you watched it, 
Democrats would do lots of questions like this back and forth and, and Republicans just talked, right? They would yes. ask a yes or no question every now and then and no expansion from Mueller because they didn't want Mueller to talk, right? Yeah. They wanted to use their five minutes to eat up the time, make their point and then get Mueller to say yes to, to like at the end of there. And hmm. that was a, you know, I think that's a smart yeah. strategy from a, if, if you view this as pure politics, that's a smart strategy. That's what's heartbreaking to me is that this is a moment yeah. that shouldn't be about just politics. It should mm -hmm. be about, hey, where it began, which is the, an investigation into Russian interference. And, you know, let's actually get to the bottom of this. Let's figure out what's going on. If, you know, if Trump isn't actually, you know, uh, uh, guilty of anything, then let's figure that out. Like, let's get to the bottom of mm -hmm. this. And it doesn't feel it, it just doesn't feel like there are some who are actually trying to do that, but there, it doesn't feel like there are very many. Well, I mean, that's the story that gets lost in this, and even Mueller spoke to it uh, in regards to Russian interference in, in the election and the upcoming election on top of it, that their Russia's, you know, they were absolutely uh, culpable uh, for their whatever part that they played in, in 2016, and they're continuing to do it now, and they expect to have a similar impact going forward. And we haven't done anything about it, mm -hmm. uh, to, to my knowledge or anyone else's knowledge. And it's this political theater, regardless of, of what end of the political spectrum that you're on, that seems to be taking up all the oxygen in the room. And there doesn't seem to be any tactical benefit to any of it. It's, it, you know, it, it's it's just a roundabout way of saying that it's political theater. But um, in regards to the Democratic strategy with all of this, they've got a real severe identity crisis with this. And and Pelosi is, is up against the wall, and I almost feel bad for her, but I still hate her. Um, <laughs> She is she has been a major proponent, a proponent of saying that impeachment is not the politically savvy thing to do at this point. And there is a, a growing wing of her party that is not taking that shit anymore. I think the number is up to like 90 who want to 90 Democrats who want to open or are, are supportive of opening an investigation mm -hmm. uh, in the House. And that's I mean, that's. Not tipping point, but it's moving that way. No, but the uh, the opposite of that is that the Republicans, yeah. regardless of whether you're talking about the the fringe element or the more moderates, they're fairly unified and they're not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. either support of Trump or their um, negation of, of the Mueller report. Yeah. I, I, again, it's it's political theater, but it's very strategic and they know how to play the game. Like you said, I, the Democrats continue to try and play their game, but if they don't have a reckoning with this split between the different elements of the party, they're, they're just, they're not going to win in 2020. It's not going to happen. That's where I think that also, I feel like some of the conclusions that this was a dud or it didn't have the impact. I, that's where I kind of want to, I still want to hold off on it because I think if you're, if you're thinking of, you know, Joe American as the audience, then this probably was a bit of a dud, but I think the, the audience that you have to be, that I think really matters are, to some extent, members of Congress, right? So if you if there are 90 House members who are Democrats who think we should open an investigation, and this, you know, sitting there and hearing Robert Mueller, like they're listening to that in a different way than the average person at home watching C-SPAN or, you know, CNN. And so if five more House members think that, hey, this is enough, that's that's significant. That's important. And and also, if Democrats who think that absolutely, uh, you know, Donald Trump should be impeached, if they're fired up by this, right, they already think that they watch this and they're like, this is ridiculous that nothing has happened. If they get fired up, then some of the Democratic 
Congress people also might be pushed to start yeah. acting more. And so it's where, like, if you take this general over, I think, first of all, when we say that this, you know, the American population won't be moved by this, I think we don't know. That may be likely. But even then, it might be that the general population isn't moved, but some important, you know, constituencies are that might actually change things. I. You know, again, I may just be really naive about no, that. Well, but. I think if we use a historical example, go back to Nixon and the, the investigations, the Watergate investigations, the public was not there early on. It right. took a while after a number of, you know, they, they were interviewing people. And then finally, after that drip, 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 then there was movement. So if the Democrats look at this and say, there's a little bit of movement here. And if we start impeachment hearings, then we can really begin to make the case then maybe you can move the public. I, I, I don't know if today moved the needle much, no. but if, if it moves a little bit, then maybe Pelosi's under a little more strain. I, I'll be very interested to see what she says. Nick, you're shaking your head. She, no, she's not because yeah. they're going on vacation. This was planned so they would oh, go on vacation, brilliant. and this is going to complete. This is this is a flash in the pan, <laughs> and no one's going to remember it by the time go, they get back. She should go somewhere where she can't get any internet. Nobody can get a hold of her. Where's Pelosi? I don't know. She's in the South, <laughs> South China Sea somewhere. I don't know. She's, <laughs> So, oh, <laughs> Bill, you and I texted a little before or at the yeah. beginning when it first started. And we were talking about how if you go back to Nixon, what the what the uh, what the House did, what the Democrats did is they they basically brought in an outside counsel. So rather than yeah. the politicians themselves asking the questions, they had someone who was essentially, a, you know, legally who was legally trained, knew the law, knew how to cross examine someone that, that did the questioning. Um I still I, I think that's a better process for the truth. Right? Like if you really want to get to the bottom of this, it would have been fantastic if Republicans and Democrats both had said, hey, we've brought this person in that's independent. We, we want them to get to the bottom of things. And it's going to be three hours of an interview between this person and Mueller. That would have been fantastic. Mm -hmm. The Republicans aren't going to sign on to that. But the Democrats could have. They could have all you know, ceded their time as the Republicans did with the Kavanaugh hearings yeah. to a person who could cross examine. I don't know that that would have made any more fiery of TV. It it might have, but would it have? I feel like there would have been a more cohesive strategy to the questioning. Do you do you think the impact, either legal or public opinion wise, would have been better if they had done that? If they had could play like a team, right? If yeah. they could all come together and say, "Here's our strategy. Here's how we're going to do it," and and it's not about me being the one asking the questions. It's about getting to the the truth. Well, I think the Democrats did have a nice structure to their questions. I mean, they flowed, right? So when one person ran out of their five minutes, you know, uh, they spent a lot on a lot of time. I'm trying to remember which episode this was. Oh, the uh, the firing of uh, the potential firing of Mueller, right? They they broke that up over two to three people, so it was clear that when one person's questions ended, it flowed to another. So I, there was at least a good structure there. But I think my, my guess the the clips that are going to go around are going to be Adam Schiff because he was so much better at it. He knew how to ask it. He knew to how to get a rhythm going. He knew how to. I mean, he wasn't even asking questions, but Mueller was still responding to them. That would have made for better performance than what they did. Because it did feel a little halting, and some of that was Mueller. But some of that, you're right, was going from different styles. And some members of Congress are better that than, than others. Mm -hmm. And and it takes the—I think there's other things to it as well, which is that— 
uh, a member of Congress has to be careful about being too antagonistic yes. towards Mueller. Um, the Republicans got antagonistic because I think that benefits them. But for Democrats, they couldn't be too antagonistic. A, a prosecutor could be, right? They yeah. can push him and, and demand answers. The other thing is that uh, it also, on the other side, takes some of those Democratic villain faces, right? So if you're a Republican and it's Adam Schiff asking the questions, then you're like already, mm -hmm. you're already primed to take the questions in a certain way. Or if it's, you know, uh, any, whoever, um, whereas if you take a, a, a council who's not, you could still say that they're the democratic council, but it's still, I, I don't know. I think it, it opens the room for a little bit different type of question and maybe opens people up to hearing the responses in a slightly different way than if it's, than if it's Democrats asking them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that might have worked well. That's why they'll never do it. Well, as, and I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> as, as one example, to, to Phil's point about whether members of Congress move that way. So, so Nick, our representative, uh, Sean Kasten, yeah. who's a Democrat, he, he tweeted out something, <clears throat> first, uh, first term Democrat, tweeted out something an hour after the uh, the hearings were over basically calling for Congress to do something right so and he lives and so we live in a, a, a conservative district that sometimes votes Democratic I thought it was interesting has, that he has moved, he made those claims before I don't remember I, I, he certainly hasn't tweeted them out so whether I'll have yeah. to see whether he's part of the 90 but this felt like way more vocal in in a place that is you know fiscally conservative, if not necessarily socially conservative, certainly not socially. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll see what happens there, and there may be enough movement where Pelosi's hand is forced. I, I think you're right, Nick. She doesn't want to do this. No, uh, you know she's thinking 2020. She's not thinking in terms of the you know the the short term right thing to do. No, um, but in the end, there she's part of the she's part of the machine, and yeah. realistically, you don't get your policies enacted if you don't win elections. That's the game. Yeah. So I, that's I, I I completely understand her point, but I completely understand the opposing point too. Sure. Something someone needs to do something principled. Not even in this situation specifically, but in all these situations, something needs to change. Um, I, I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm so torn on this myself as well, a, because I think when you look at the evidence, to me, it's clear that Congress needs to move on this. The, 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 just looking at the evidence itself. But thinking about what's the bigger picture here, uh, there are a number of compelling arguments made by those saying that the, the big thing you need to worry about is not allowing Trump to win in 2020. Mm -hmm. And the impeachment will distract. And I'm not sure whether I buy that but, argument, but I get it. Yeah. I would come back with the even bigger thing than that. Yeah. Is the, the institutions and the norms. Yes. And the, you know, that, that is bigger. So, I mean, it's what we talked it's about last norms, week. always norms, mm -hmm. I know, I know. <laughs> We talked about it last week with the Supreme Court. Yeah. Where about, um, you know, if you save the Supreme Court, but the way you save it is by never actually doing anything, then what's the point of saving it? Right. It's a little bit like you're exactly right, Nick, but it, it's like, uh, you know, it's important. If Democrats had, had managed to win the Senate, this wouldn't be an issue, right? The impeachment proceedings would have moved forward yes. already. But at the same time, if, you know, if, if it's all about winning, but when you win and you control the house, you don't do a damn thing, then what's the point in winning? Yeah. Right? Like at some point you have to say, we're going to actually take a stand on this and maybe we'll get, you know, kicked out of office in tremendous numbers, or maybe it's what we believe in. And so we're going to take a stand for it. And hopefully that is why people will vote for us because they, they line up with what we believe in. I can't decide if Nancy Pelosi is really shrewd and is thinking long term about this or if, if politics have moved past her. Right. I think she has handled Trump really, really well. But her handling of all of this surrounding the impeachment seems 
just you know two steps behind. Uh, even if she doesn't want to move forward with impeachment, how she's handled some of this has made me question the other good moves that she's made in dealing with Trump. Oh. I, I mean, I don't know, man. Like it's <laughs> no, I, like I, I mean, obviously this is a big deal, and yeah. there needs to be more, not necessarily investigations, but we need to know more. Sure. Um, but at the same time. Outside of this, they're making budget deals. They're trying to make progress on immigration mm-hmm. um, between you know Pelosi and Schumer and, and Trump and and members of the uh, the Republican Party. Things are still working that are outside of this fucking circus that's been going on for two years. Actually, a lot this last week. Yeah, more a lot than, yeah. this last week, which is not necessarily bipartisan, but certainly less. Um, uh, politically volatile yeah. than what we've seen in in this particular situation, um, and and you know you can talk about Trump saying you know if we we didn't have this inv- investigation you know how much shit we would have gotten done and there's there is some to me there is some element to that I think this needs to be this is this is a reckoning that needs to be that needs mm-hmm. to be had that needs to be reckoning needs to be fleshed out right 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 the third time today. Um, but at the same time, when do we get back to the actual? Oh, that's gone, Nick. Of, Nick, that's oh, that's done. We're, okay, we're I just done. wanted to make sure. I really that was I was just getting to that point. <laughs> that was so that was so 2015. <laughs> well, we should probably move on and talk about some beers. Yes, uh, Phil, what are you enjoying? Uh, so I'm. Uh, <laughs> I was telling you before we came on. I started a heavy dose of steroids today, so I'm <laughs> pumped up. But uh, uh, it means that I can't drink a whole lot of alcohol. So I'm drinking. I grabbed a Harpoon Rec League, which I've I've had on here a few weeks ago, because um, it's 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 light. It's like a 3.8 percent. It's um, you know if, if when you're in the mood for like a pale ale, but you yeah. don't want something real heavy, it 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 hits the spot. It's not a it's not a uh, world changer, but it's it's pretty good. Yeah, I get my hands on that. that yeah, sounds really get that. good. Yeah, when you come out here for the live show, you know you got to bring, bring some, some of that with you. Yeah, Nick, what are we enjoying? We are having a uh, a Sculpin IPA from uh, Ballast, um, which they're out of they're out of San Diego. Yeah, that's right. Um, this one's been around forever. Yeah. Um, it just it's just kind of there. Yeah. It doesn't do it for me anymore. Realistically, I I never Ballast has has some decent stuff. The Sculpin just it just didn't do it for me. It has a a weird kind of harshness to it, yep. I guess, for yeah. lack of a better That's term. That's a great word. Um, yeah, I, there's just there's a lot of better alternatives now, I feel like. I always feel like the times that I, I, I'm convinced to spend like 13 or $14 on a six-pack, and you know, some guy says, oh, you gotta try. It's always a ballast point, mm-hmm. and inevitably I drink the first one, and I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> or, or I, you know, it's not... Not something I'm excited about, and I, I I feel that way about this beer. Everybody goes crazy for it, and it's it's an okay beer, but we've had so many better beers than this. Yes, so, yeah, it's you know try harder, <clears throat> try harder. You're living off your reputation. <clears throat> all right, speed round. Uh, yeah, if you guys are oh, yeah. interested in the beers that we try, uh, you can find all of our reviews on Untapped that you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics on there uh, and check that out. 
All right. Now you can do the thing. Let's do it. So so we've been so busy talking about this. Last week, we were so busy talking about the Supreme Court. We didn't have a chance to reflect on President Trump's big Fourth of July celebration out in Washington, D.C. The salute to America. America. Yes. <laughs> President Trump finally got his big military show with tanks, planes, and fancy helicopters. The speech itself was relatively tame uh, as Trump, Trump refrained from any campaign talk and instead talked to a high, stuck to a highly patriotic and militaristic script. Now, as luck would have it, I happened to be out in D.C., Nick, that week and was able to attend the event. I thought it might be fun for me to share a few thoughts about the experience and then, you know, have some discussion about it. Mm -hmm. And so, so what struck me, this was the first time that I had been around thousands and thousands of Trump supporters. Oh, my and God. They, did they hurt you? No, they did not. They I were, know, because they, they, they don't. Yeah, they were. Yeah, it was all very peaceful. But they were out in oh, mass. Bill is, Bill is a white male. That's, right. <laughs> That's a good point. So, you know, so the the big event was uh, Trump gave a speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And, of course, then it stretched. It was a huge crowd. It stretched all the way back uh, to the Washington Monument. And there were a lot of people there. There were Trump supporters. There were those that were just curious. Uh, there were, I think, that I may have been the only social scientist there. <laughs> and there were a lot of protesters. But the one thing that struck me was that the thousands and thousands of Trump supporters, this is... To me, it felt like an identity, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was thinking about previous presidents. Know, and it felt like America, didn't it? It did, right? <laughs> uh, in, in, a, in a very unique way. There have always been fanatics about certain presidents, whether you're, you know, Obama or Reagan or Clinton, you know, George W. Bush. And, and, and then people wear shirts. But I don't remember a group where they, I mean, the, the mega hat was everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the shirts and the clothes. And it was a sense of identity and a connection with the presidential candidate in a way that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, they were bold. They were proud. Uh, there was a sense of confrontation. Like, uh, you saw them around D.C. the next couple days. And they were not shy about being Trump supporters and had no problem confronting others. And it just struck me. There's this. There's this broader conversation of. Hold yeah. on. I'm sorry to interrupt. What does that mean? Who did they confront? Uh, just like there would be random people on the street where somebody might say something sarcastic. Uh, so there was one incident. So we were we were walking. My kids and I were walking to this barbecue restaurant, and there was an African American man sitting standing on a corner, and he made some negative comment to this group of Trump supporters walking by, and it immediately led to this argument. Mm -hmm. And of course, we stood there and watched, and it was not violent, but there was a a sense of pride among the Trump supporters and confrontation uh, that was just, it was kind of surprising. In some ways, it was very fascinating. And so you saw that a number of times over the, the five days that we were there. We went to Ford's Theater and so we came in and then a group of 10 mega hat wearing individuals came in after us. So we did the tour basically with a bunch of Trump supporters. Uh, and again, I was just, I was, I was so struck by the way in which this candidacy is an identity. People talk a lot about whether Trump supporters are driven by economic anxiety. And it, to me, it felt like that's that's a bunch of garbage. This is identity. This is There's something very deep about the connection between Trump and these supporters. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they're, they're, those identities have been strong in the yeah. past, but they've been tied more to party than to person, yes. right? So I like, you know, there were people, there weren't people who were like sort of proudly it wasn't that, you know, it, there were people who were Democrats and so they supported Clinton or Republicans and they supported Bush, but it what didn't feel like their support was tied up in the identity of, yes. you know, people didn't walk around wearing George Bush hats or Bill Clinton hats, right? It feels like there is something a little different and it feels like even Trump's ability to sort of co-opt some of the symbols, right? Yes. So I, my impression, I've never been to the 
Fourth of July thing in D.C. But my impression from from just Fourth of July celebrations I've been to in my life is that it attracts all types, right? It, there's everything from you know elderly to young, from conservative to liberal, you know hippies to you know, everything in between. Um, and it's like this thing that everyone can kind of come together. And even if we don't like it, we all get to sit around and enjoy the fireworks. And we're proud to be Americans for a day. Um, but the fact that this event essentially see, it sounds like it was less of a 4th of July celebration and more of a Trump's 4th yes. of July celebration, yeah. right? It almost like turned into a big rally. That is, that's really interesting to me, right? That showing up for this event was sort of a statement for these people, for, for people, yeah. um, the, of your support for Trump, not about, it wasn't about <clears throat> the 4th of July necessarily, and um, the, primarily. The, there were competing 4th of July celebrations in DC. There was the more traditional one that happened at the Capitol. I think John <laughs> Stamos hosted that one. I'll bet he did. <laughs> you know, I bet that was spectacular. And that was the normal one. It mm -hmm. was just, you know, they had songs and, and your silly patriotism. And the Trump one was very, <laughs> very different. Yeah. Um, even his speech, which, uh, of course, anybody could listen to, but it was much more militaristic. And I will say, like, they did the flyovers, and the flyovers were fantastic. Each of the armed forces came, and they flew down low. And it was it was impressive to be there during that speech, but the speech itself really was a lot about these military victories. It was about how wonderful the troops are. Oftentimes, those Fourth of July speeches are about the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, the structure of the system, how beautiful that was. This was a very different approach, and it, it fit with kind of this identity of Trump as this guy who's going to fight for these people, fight for this group. I mean, it just it was it, it was sort of fascinating to watch this play out at a big screen, and you know, it was extremely peaceful. We were uh, right around the the Code Pink group where they had the big baby Trump balloon, you know, oh and there were lots of arguments there, but they were all fairly reasonable, right. you know. Um, yeah, it was it was stunning to see. <clears throat> it's I know we're out of time. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. Um, it, it's uh, yes, I I think that Trump has he's tapped into some. Uh, it's an, I don't think it's necessarily Trump as much as it's an identity that a lot of a lot of working class and and frankly a lot of middle class people yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, just feel like has been negated and taken away from them especially yeah. since the end of the cold war probably since the clinton administration on even through bush too yeah um this is something that you know we kind of had to negate um our, our just kind of outlandish um very western kind of chauvinistic yeah. uh, uh perception of who we are and how proud we are to be american it was it, it, it to me it feels very uh, again, kind of late 80s, Reagan era, you know, military, rah-rah, that kind of thing that disappeared over the past, the better part of 20 years. Yeah. And these people now have something to coalesce around. Um, and it isn't like you said, there was there's no violence or anything behind it. But this is the first time they've had a real opportunity to come out in force and not necessarily feel ashamed about it. That's a great way to put it. There was no shame, right? There was there. It's pride. And, and I think you're you're spot on. Even though I don't think Trump embodies much of what some of this group believes in, so it's it's mm -hmm. a lot of it's a it's an interesting mix of sort of whiteness. I mean, there's the there, there aren't a lot of people of color in this group. It's you know it's it's white conservative <clears throat> Christians, traditional values, and Trump doesn't always espouse those. Actually, rarely does. But he's willing to fight for them, mm -hmm. and that was the other sense. Like here's a guy who's willing to fight for us to stand up. To, to you know to fight dirty for us right. and and we're willing even though we don't always necessarily agree with 
what he stands for, we're we're with him, mm-hmm. and uh, it's I, I I feel a little uncomfortable. It's not it's a cult of personality, and I know when you use the word cult, it's kind of loaded, but there it, it is that connection between Trump and his supporters is something I've never seen in politics. Felt pretty good though, huh? It did. Those planes flying over, <laughs> seeing those I, tanks. I loved it. The helicopters, America, you know. Yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> All right. (laughs) That was fun. Thank you. All right, let's move on. So TV making us dumber, Nick. Uh, I think most of us assume that watching TV made us stupid, but according to a recent study, it may also impact our voting behavior. It's pronounced nuclear. (laughs) In a study recently published in the American Economic Review, three economists found that watching trashy TV, bad TV, made voters in Italy more likely to vote for populist candidates. Italy made for a perfect study because until the late 1970s, the only national channels were run by RAI, the state broadcaster, where nearly two-thirds of its content consisted of serious news or educational programming, sort of basically like PBS. All of this changed in the 1980s when Italy's first uh, private network, Mediaset, hit the airways. The gradual introduction of Mediaset's networks into different regions of Italy made it possible to study the effect that entertainment television had on voting behavior. What the researchers found was that as exposure to Mediaset's programming spread, it was followed by an enduring boost in support for populist candidates, both on the left and on the right, which I think is really interesting. Young people who watched Mediaset during their formative years grew up to be, quote, less cognitively sophisticated and less civically minded. So dummies. Yes. <laughs> than their peers who had access to public broadcasting, broadcasting during the same period. Phil, this is pretty damn fascinating. What's your reaction? And uh, you need to keep it simple because Nick and I watch a lot of bad TV. <laughs> I watch the same three documentaries every friggin' week. I, I, so I thought this was fascinating, too. It's like this kind of perfect natural experiment. And, and they went on in the, you know, the article that you sent me. They also did a similar uh, th- study in Indonesia where it yes. was just exposure to, I think it was just exposure to TV in general. Yeah. Um, and the same effect occurred that people who basically watched TV were more, had more populist sentiments than people who, who didn't. I, so, I mean, I, there's all sorts, like my, my, you know, social science brain starts kicking in and I start thinking about, is it... I mean, they basically argued that people who watch simple-minded TV uh, are drawn to essentially simple answers, right? Yeah. When a politician basically says they're the bad, you know, that's the reason why you're why you know whoever this group is why you're <clears throat> you're struggling. Um, those are appealing to people who haven't basically <laughs> practiced <laughs> any sort of complex critical thinking because they sit around watching TV all the time. I mean, I couldn't help but think about the rise of certainly in TV, like in our lifetime, the expansion of networks and sort of the the mindless crap that's yes. on TV, but also the expansion of 24-hour news, right? And and the 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 when you especially it's not really 24-hour news; it's partisan news, right? Yeah. If you watch if you're watching Fox News or you're watching MSNBC, you're there's not a, the engagement, not as much engagement in the critical thinking, right? It's this here's the simple answer to things. You don't need to think about this. Here's the answer. And so I see those playing into it as well. Um, you know, I was talking about this with, with Kelly, with my wife and her first thought was, is it the stuff that's on TV or is it just watching TV? And, and it comes back around to sort of Robert Putnam and social capital stuff. The, yeah. the more we sit around on our couches watching TV, the less we actually interact with other citizens. You know, if you, all you do is sit around and watch TV, you don't go out and meet other people in your town. You don't meet Trump supporters and interact with them and say, Hey, I disagree with them, but they're, you know, they're normal. Um, and so we don't have that sort of faith and trust in our fellow citizens. And so I think that probably plays into it as well. 
Mm. I, in the end, we're we're screwed, right? <laughs> <laughs> because the internet, if this is the, if this if TV is a problem, right? The internet's just oh, bad God. on steroids, right? I, I think that's exactly right, right? Is, is so our TV is dumb and dumbing us down, and then we quickly drift to social media to the internet. It reinforces all those things. Society, it is really really bad. So I, I, I full transparency, I didn't get to look at the study itself. Um, <laughs> um, did they say specifically what programming was part of the study? I'm trying to remember. They, they, it was so. It was Silvio Berlusconi who was the prime minister in Italy. He mm-hmm. was the big media magnet who pushed this right. in. They talked about. I'm trying to remember, Phil. If they they got into specific programming, I don't remember. But no. they they just called it lowbrow TV. That yeah. it was more it was, reality and. My impression of it, the way it works, is that it would be as if every American only had PBS. And then suddenly, you know, over the course of a decade, half of the country got PBS and the CW or something. Yeah. <laughs> <was> like, the <laughs> Learning Channel. <laughs> the Learning Channel, right. No. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I don't think they got into the, the details of, like, which specific TV shows, but it was the type of programming was yeah. the contrast. And what was really fascinating about the study, and I'll, I'll give back to you, was that you could, it didn't all roll out at once. Right. It rolled out over time, and it was, they saw the same pattern mm-hmm. everywhere that Mediaset was introduced. Yeah, I, I mean, like you said, Phil, I, I, I'm just curious whether it was, like, pure trashy TV, it's Kardashian bullshit, or if it is, you know, 24-hour cable news or something like that that's driving the narrative. And especially in, I, I think, in Europe over the past 20 years, you have to think about the EU and, you know, the, the turmoil with that and populist movements and how that affected it. And I think there are different variables in there that could potentially account for more than just the... T- I, I, I mean, I, I would assume that would... Fe- if it was 24-hour cable news or something, obviously that feeds into it and exacerbates yeah. the, the problem. What was but. interesting, I don't think that they... A lot of the programming wasn't necessarily news-based, so it wasn't like Fox, MSNBC stuff. It was just the, like, the Kardashian, that kind Dr. of stuff. Dr. Pimple Popper. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I don't know about that film. My, my <laughs> wife and daughter love that show. <laughs> oh, God. But, you know, the idea that it was just... it was They kept using the term lowbrow, which I love. Oh, that's so great. And that it made you dumber and more susceptible to these populist simplistic. And they thought that the data might, because Berlusconi was on the right, that it might lead to more right-wing populist. But they said that's not true. Right. That this dumb TV just makes you susceptible to either appeals from the left or the right. Mm-hmm. Simplistic appeals, right? Exactly. Like this this yeah. I can solve your problems. The, the, the sort of Trump Boris Johnson sort of like I can fix this. Yes, which yeah. I, I think you know as we think about the broader societal challenge this poses, this is a really really big deal, not just in Italy but in the United States as well, where we watch this dumb TV, we go to social media and and find our own networks, and we're not civically engaged, we're right. not civically educated, and it's it's going to hurt us, you know, not in terms of you know left or right, but we just should be. I don't know. We should be engaging in better civic education, whether that's at the college level or the high school level. I mean, it's it's a real it's it's important for the United States moving forward. We're screwed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> on that note. All right. Let's move on. Do some foreign policy. So Trump made more foreign policy news this week. While welcoming Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan to the Oval Office on Monday, Trump criticized the U.S. role in the 18-year war in Afghanistan, suggesting the U.S. had, quote, acted as policemen, not soldiers, and noting the U.S. could swiftly end it through brute military strength that would leave 10 million people dead. America. Nick, this is one where it's better to listen to the tape. <laughs> I, I can do that. Hold, hold please. <laughs> 
There is tremendous potential between our country and Pakistan. I think Pakistan's going to help us out uh, to extricate ourselves. We're like policemen. We're not fighting a war. If we wanted to fight a war in Afghanistan and win it, I could win that war in a week. I just don't want to kill 10 million people. Does that make sense to you? I don't want to kill 10 million people. Yes, sir. I have plans on Afghanistan that if I wanted to win that war, Afghanistan would be wiped off the face of the earth. It would be gone. It would be over in literally in 10 days. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to go that route. So He's so reasonable, Nick. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, we'll have that discussion. I'll, I'll take that up. <laughs> and not surprisingly, Afghanistan did not appreciate Trump's rift about wiping the country off the face of the earth and has demanded the United States clarify those remarks. Trump also managed to complicate the situation between India and Pakistan by mentioning that the Indian government had invited him to mediate the Kashmir dispute. The Indian government quickly <laughs> released a statement denying that any such request was made. Phil, while this didn't get a lot of attention, Mueller sucked up all the air in the room. It was a good display of foreign policy. It was not a good display of foreign policy. I can't talk. Phil, this was messed up. Freudian slip. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was messed Yeah, so this is messed up for, I mean, I, I'm going to talk about why it's messed up for a different <laughs> reason than, than the foreign policy stuff. I, the, um, I mean, like when you hear him say that, like I can I can sort of feel my eyes rolling, right? Like it's like you're at the bar and there's the guy who's like spouting off like Brett and you're like, you don't you don't actually take him seriously. This is, you know, Trump where we've we've gotten used to like he just says these things. And so we kind of like whatever. Yeah. Um, but like if you pause and think about what he said, right, which is essentially a threat of genocide, right? The, the president openly said uh, basically a veiled threat of I could kill 10 million people tomorrow if I wanted to. And everyone just like moves on from it. That that is that's insane. Right. We should take it. You combine that with the thing he he said or tweeted the next day about I think it was a tweet about uh, how under the Second Amendment are the sorry. The no, he, Article said that. Two, he said that <laughs> he said that uh, because yeah. of Article two, he can basically do what that essentially he's above the law. He can do whatever he wants. Those two things alone. I can do whatever I want. The Constitution gives me that power. And two, I could wipe. I could kill 10 million people tomorrow and into this war, though, like forget all the Mueller crap today. Right. Those two things alone should be enough to send up red flags to people for people to go. I don't know if this guy's. Uh, mentally, uh, you know, if he's if he's suitable to the office of the president, they they should concern us all. Not to mention the fact that Afghanistan, like we have agreements with the Afghan <laughs> right. government, right? It's not we're not at war with Afghanistan. <laughs> he's threatening to wipe them out. The entire uh, anyway, there's with, with just, a nuclear bomb, so, right? I mean, that's the real. He was he was discussing the plans the United States has. We and the the U.S. has plans for nuking every country around the world. Well, that's yeah. my point. Is anyone under the illusion that he doesn't? have the capability or would not or any right. president for that matter would not have the capability to wipe out 10 million people on the face of the earth both he has that capability and the u.s military has plans right. for all of that so is the problem that he can do that or that he, he said it out loud ding, 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 so ding. what the fuck is the problem you're <laughs> like just both. lying to yourself <laughs> well the fact that he said it right because both you know obama bush all the other ones were probably presented with these plans at some point like mr president here are the plans to destroy every single country on earth and i'm guessing most of those presidents said holy crap right you know put those away i don't i don't want those but trump is sharing them no but I, I, the 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 other subtext of this is especially in afghanistan you're talking about the longest war in american history which realistically yeah. has no end in sight and is this right 
leftover bullshit of nation building after 9-11, which is not a policy that works well with the U.S. military. You go in there, you have an objective, you complete it, and you leave. That's how you win a war. I agree, but you but don't... But you, you don't do that, <laughs> and, and we've done it historically. We did it in world... We carpet-bombed cities to the ground and killed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people without blinking an eye. And this that's, that's how you... W- Quote how you win a war. That's not how you win the peace, but you definitely win a war like that. Sure. But you don't I, randomly bring this up at a discussion with another country. Like, oh yeah, we could nuke Pakistan. That didn't well, mean that. it depends on how badly they pissed you off. That I mean, an ally. Afghanistan is an ally of the United States. <laughs> I can't think of another president in the history of the the Republic who talked about nuking right. an ally randomly. Afghanistan is an so, ally of convenience. Like most of the Middle East at this point. Go yeah, on, you're, Phil. You're, you're both right. <laughs> so I think we talked about a few weeks ago. I, 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 maybe it was more than a few weeks ago. This article that I used in my foreign policy class that I found really interesting, um, which said that uh, basically makes the argument that Trump is no different yeah. than other presidents in foreign policy. Right. And this is what you're saying, Nick. Right. right? Like every, Like our foreign policy for the past 70 years has been based on the implied threat that we can and will, if necessary, nuke anyone in the world, right? And so Trump is just saying the thing that we all understand to be true. And so he is both, um, you know, there's something about him that is very different and that he's saying it. But at the other hand, he's just kind of revealing the hypocrisy or the brutality of American foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Like that is the implied aspect of U.S. foreign policy for, you know, I mean, that was during the Cold War. It was it wasn't even all that implied. Right. It was we we can kill millions of people at the push of a button at any moment if we want to. Having said that, right, that we understanding that and then going around and talking about it is also that on your side, Bill, is is weird, right? Like I, I there's for some reason there's a screwdriver on my desk and I, <laughs> I, I have the power. So I'm standing here with a screwdriver. I have the I could take this screwdriver and jam it into your neck at any moment. Right. That is true. I have that power. Um, but if I continued to say that to you over and over <laughs> right. again, right, that's when you would start to go, what the hell is wrong with this guy, right? right? It's not the possession of the power. It's like continuing to mention it that makes you go, there's something brought weird or wrong or not, not right, right? It's, yeah. That's the part that's weird about it, right? It, it has been understood. It's been implied. But the fact that Trump goes back to it over and over and over again is it's troubling. Well, Nick, you always say that he says the quiet thing out loud. Of course. And yeah. this was another example of that. But th- to me, this felt like... There's certain things that you can never say out loud, right? The t- openly Why? talking about nuking an ally to solve a problem, right? I mean, this this pissed off Afghanistan. And again, I understand that the, the power dynamic is in the U.S. favor here, but this is awful. And then the whole thing about, I mean, we don't have time to get into this, but the, the Kashmir dispute between India and Pakistan where, in, you know, Trump says India asked him to, to mediate this and India couldn't reject this more quickly. I'm just assuming that was a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is, and again, you know, there's so much going on that it's hard to focus on this, but this was a big deal. We to fill your earlier point, we didn't talk about his his discussion of Article Two, which is crazy. I mean, he basically said, as president, Article Two allows me to do everything, and it it, it certainly doesn't. Um, but but he said it, and it didn't make much news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's again, it's another one of those where we have somehow adopted, or like everything is different. Like it's been so crazy under Trump. I, yeah. If 
any other president. And I don't mean that I, oftentimes we talk about if Obama did this. And, and certainly if Obama had said under Article 2, I can do anything I want, like Republicans' heads would have exploded everywhere. But if George Bush had, if yes. George W. Bush had said this, right? I mean, that, that he got so much pushback just for kind of the, the pushing the expansion, arguing that essentially under war he has unlimited powers. In this one area, he has unlimited powers. And that was controversial. Uh, and it feels like we have just sort of either, you know, we just dismiss stuff he says or we're so used to it. It's it's a strange thing. Nick, your prison analogy sticks. It's the <laughs> it's the most brilliant thing that's been said on this podcast. We've just gotten used to being in prison and we're not worrying about it. I, anymore. Like, I, I just mm, I, 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 I question the constant need to lie to ourselves about how brutal our foreign yeah, policy is. Yes, yeah, some things we don't want to admit to ourselves and some things could be said more tactfully or more politically um, uh, in, in a more politically savvy way this is the reality of the world in my opinion and even under the Obama administration he was constantly talking about not you know using torture as a device anymore we knew people were still being tortured and there's just countless just you know, little micro wars that are going on throughout Africa and the Middle East and Southeast Asia that we know nothing about, that we're all part of his administration, that we just lie to ourselves about. And I, I, I don't like the tact of this, but I like just the brutal honesty of it. I don't want to think too deeply about that, Nick, because I think it might be right. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. I don't say that very often, but yeah. All right. Well, it's official. Britain's next prime minister is Boris Johnson. Today, Johnson officially replaced outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May after she announced her resignation last month amid failure to lead the nation out of the European Union. We talked about Boris Johnson last week, but we didn't fully explore what this might mean for the future of the United Kingdom, and in particular for Scotland and Northern Ireland. Johnson's election and his full-throated commitment to a hard Brexit has some speculating on the future of both regions. Both Northern Ireland and Scotland voted to remain in the EU. In an opinion piece for the New York Times, British journalist James Butler argued that Boris faces the most complex and uh, intractable political crisis to affect Britain since 1945, and posits that his premiership could bring about the end of Britain itself. Phil, that would be historical development. Uh, hold Jeez, on, Nick. Hold on. Let's I'm entertain this. Joking. We're academics. This is fun. <laughs> Phil is our resident expert on all things Britain. Do you share this concern about the future of Northern Ireland and Scotland? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, so I don't – what that means, I think, is not that this is a certainty, but I think the odds of, of, of Great Britain, of the United Kingdom in some way breaking apart, Scotland having another referendum, pushing for independence, something with Northern uh, – re-aggravating – we talked about that last week – re-aggravating the crisis in Northern Ireland, the number of people who were okay with the status quo because of the open border, you know, those, those antagonisms are going to get uh, irritated again. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the, the interesting thing I think about with Boris Johnson, I saw some survey day to day, and one of the things, you know, a lot of comparisons get drawn between he and Trump. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that those comparisons are fair to some extent, right? He's kind of uh, in, on surface level things like look and whatnot, but more in his like populism and his kind of approach to politics. The difference is that Trump... Um, there was a national like Trump, even though he didn't, you know, he didn't he didn't win the popular vote. He he had some sort of um, uh, what, why is my mind going blank? He, he you know he had he had a, an election in which people brought him to power. 
that, that's not how Boris Johnson is coming to power, right? So his party is in is in power and leadership is changing. And so the people of Britain have not had a say directly in this. Um, and this, the survey that I saw today shows that uh, the, a huge chunk of people in Britain think that he is like Donald Trump. Yeah. And the vast majority of them think that's a bad thing. Um, and so I, I think that uh, he doesn't have the benefit of having this big election with a huge mandate, right? He's coming into power. I think he's representing... Uh, a part of a conservative party that is not so he's a small part or a you know a chunk of not necessarily a small part of a conservative party the conservative party is not terribly popular right now he's championing a policy that's not necessarily terribly popular and so I, it'll be interesting to see how that goes i could see him really kind of going down in flames relatively quickly but i could see him taking the state of british <laughs> politics with him as he does that well and if i I, th I thought also something this week about Scotland hating Boris Johnson, right? I mean, sure. they, they they are not at all on board with this. Right. So if he sticks around a while, it's 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 reasonable for Scotland to say our economic prospects are better connecting with the EU mm -hmm. than just with with yep. the, the rest and, of the UK. Yeah. And and the other part to to think about it with this is that Scotland. Uh, is historically a Labour Party supporting area. They vote overwhelmingly for the Labour Party. So they're not conservative by any means. It's kind of a working class, you know, coal mining type sort of background. Um, and so as uh, what has happened in, in recent years is that the, the Scottish Nationalist Party has, has gained prominence and has pushed the Labour Party out. Now, why that matters is that the Labour Party is in, in shit shape right now too, and so the Labour Party's not exactly. If you're if you're in Scotland and you're looking, and Boris Johnson is in power, and you don't like that, but the Labour Party is also in a you know a pile of crap. The the appeal of the Scottish Nationalist Party or the the attempt to sort of go elsewhere is even stronger than it would be would it would be before. I, I mean, I think the Northern Ireland thing and the Scotland are both going to be real issues. I think they're going to play out in different ways, but it, but yeah. Um, it's it's going to be complicated. It's going to be interesting. History has started it again. Nick? Yeah, I, I mean it's he's such a complicated character because yeah, even prior to or, or in the early days when when Brexit was was kind of becoming a movement, he was against it. He wrote articles against it, and then would turn around and write another article in favor of it because he thought about it. Because he because <laughs> he thought about it. He's yeah. very. Um, I, I don't know. Like I think being in this particular position, um, he's going to have to make more principled choices. And, and the the biggest one in the context of the conversation that we're having is a backstop agreement in regards to Northern Ireland, and I think Scotland's technically part of it, is it not? Um, they usually refer to Northern Ireland, but I think all it would it would be relevant everywhere. Right. Yeah. So yeah. basically, meaning that. Um, Britain would separate from the EU, but Northern Ireland would remain part of the EU economic system. And there would be an open border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Correct. So that, that, yeah, you could move goods and services and right. people back and forth. Which seems yeah. like an easy win at this yes. point. It's a very, it's, there's a very low barrier of, uh, of, of, um, something but he is the one interesting i don't mean to interrupt but the one interesting thing is in northern ireland uh, boris johnson is beholden to a political party there who's very much against that so he's, right. his hands are kind of tied there I, yeah I, I mean it's it's gonna be real I, I mean it's 
something's going to have to... He He's in control now. Mm-hmm. He's going to have to do something. He can't just say that it's Brexit and this is the, the deal that we made and, and we're not going to do anything about it. This is a huge situation where there are, you know, a, a ton of different components that he's never had to deal with all at once. It's, it's been but, rhetoric at this point. It's much easier to be in the role of critic. He was a journalist. You know, I mean, it's much easier to throw ideas out there than to actually He'll be gone govern. in six months. But, here, but here's and the, the system here's what he has done. Here's what he has going for him that Theresa May didn't. Theresa May was trying had to get people on board with her plan. Mm-hmm. Boris Johnson does not, right? If he thinks that we're just out no matter what and screw it, then he wins by default. Like he might lose in the long run and that he might be very unpopular, but his his path is easier in that sense. By essentially by doing nothing, he gets what he wants, which is this mm-hmm. no deal Brexit. So he's set up for success in that way, oh, yeah. uh, I, which I think will will not be, you know, for his legacy won't be a success, but he'll yeah. be able to achieve it, unlike, you know, May or, or others who kind of came before him. I, I'm, I think the pressure is going to build significantly over the next couple or next few months, however long it is. Um, he's something's going to change. And I, I think he's going to be forced <clears throat> to make some sort of concession, even if it's minor, if it's the backstop or, or, or something else. Um it, it, it can't be just a pure, you know, hard, hard Brexit, Brexit at this point. It, it's He's going to have to do something. Well, and he's in a position, it's almost like Nixon and opening China, where he's been so against, you know, so supportive of a hard Brexit that he could say, well, you know, this this is a reasonable solution here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he could be the one guy. Theresa May couldn't be that person, but he might be able to. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing is, uh, Winston Churchill was the Queen's first prime minister, and Boris Johnson might be her last. You know, which is <laughs> so it's her fault. No, no, I just it's it's the decline of of Britain when you think about that, right? She's got she's got like seventeen more years left in her. She's like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg, you know, oh, go forever. Good. All right, final topic. We got to move here quick. Each summer, <laughs> the, the Beijing bikini, Nick. This is great. Don't yes, don't each, Phil. Each summer, as Chinese cities swelter under the baking heat, middle-aged men across the country roll their t-shirts up, as Phil is doing right now, above their bellies to cool down. It's a style ubiquitous that has even earned a fond nickname, the Beijing Bikini. But in a city in China's eastern Shandong province, uh, these bikini lovers have fallen out of favor with the local authorities. The local authorities have called the practice, practice uncivilized behavior, noting that it was seriously affecting the image of the city. In addition to banning the Beijing bikini, authorities have also banned other bad behaviors, such as taking out, t- taking off shoes to air out your feet, spitting, and littering. Littering seems like the least troubling of all those. Nah, put them in jail. While not a common practice in the U.S., the Beijing bikini is an excellent way to keep your belly cool, Phil, uh, during the hot summer heat. So I ask you, gentlemen, do you support... The Beijing bikini ban. Phil, start us off. Hold on. Before you do that, <laughs> yeah. just as someone who doesn't know yet, I'm not technically middle-aged yet. <laughs> is that where most of the heat just goes oh, when you're yeah. middle-aged? Yeah. It's just all, all in yeah. your belly? Okay. I just I was curious. <laughs> and your ears. It's weird. <laughs> oh, my God. I might just have to kill myself before that. Anyways, go on. Uh, so, um, do I support the Beijing ba- bikini ban? Oh, my God. <laughs> You're here in front of me. I can't look at this. I can at least turn that TV off or something. I have to wing a... a, I don't even have a bottle. I have a can. Uh, On one level of the principle, I support it. Yes. Should you walk around with your belly hanging out? No. Like, yeah, yeah, that should be, you know, it should be discouraged. 
to the other extent that you like ban this and make it illegal, that of course is is uh, problematic from a governmental standpoint. But here's what I here's what I come back around to. We've we've talked, you know, uh, Nick, <laughs> get ready to roll your eyes at me. Nick. <laughs> uh, we talk a lot about the power of norms and the importance of norms, but this is an example, right? So, Beijing, like the Chinese government, they they're they're powerful. They don't give a shit, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're they violate human rights. They do all sorts of stuff. But the stuff they're talking about is about their perception, how the world perceives them. Mm-hmm. And so it makes the city look bad. We don't want to, people to be spitting. We don't want them with their shirts rolled up. That is the essence of norms, right? Mm-hmm. They, they are doing that because they want to be perceived a certain way by the international community. And so, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of stuff to critique China for. Um, and, and, you know, it, this is a lower level thing. You know, the, China, it's not that big of a deal to say, uh, China tells people to to quit rolling their shirts up. If you're, you know, um, having China change its policy towards, you know, Muslims in the country is a much bigger deal. But what mm. this shows is that they are susceptible to, or, uh, you know, in some way they're they're paying attention to the world and how they're perceived. And so that is, I don't know, I, I don't know if it's encouraging. It's it's like another way of kind of evidence that that these sorts of, uh, you know, the norm of appropriateness actually matters, that people think about this, and that it even affects authoritarian governments like China. I'm I 100% agree with you, Phil. I agree. They should take the Uyghurs out of the camps, and they should put these people in there. I'm completely <laughs> okay with that. <laughs> people that take their shoes <laughs> off on a plane, a, they should be put people, in there, too. That's a whole other conversation. Being a Uyghur is not a choice. Wearing a, a Beijing bikini is. Yeah, yeah, right. You're bringing this on yourself. See, okay, and so based you, on these pictures that are in this outline, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even bat an eye so, at so it. So listeners should know that I included four pictures of the Beijing bikini. Yeah, just this to is not coming off of them. like a, a, a calendar. No, All it's right. horrific. So I, I'm getting the sense that both of you are pro-banning the Beijing bikini. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm from a like personal <laughs> advice bill. If you asked me about the Beijing bikini, I would seriously discourage it. Should the government say it's illegal? No. See, that's my thought. Maybe it's Tom as Tom Cavanaugh's gotten in my head the libertarian streak because I feel like the worst thing you could do is have a government try to ban something. You know, if you, if you want to win the battle of the Beijing bikini, like, you know, you work through social norms. You try to get people to respond to, like, logical arguments. You don't ban it. If I'm in China right now, I wear the Beijing bikini because I feel like the government oppression. And then get disappeared well, by no, the I'm, communist actually, government? I'm much too afraid for that. But in theory, <laughs> that's in what theory, I would do. I would I'm very back, principled right? up here. Yeah. I'm pointing to my No, I, I think this is a terrible <laughs> idea to do because... It's, it speaks to the strength of the government. If you can't win the argument through norms and, and a real argument and you have to enforce it, that's you've lost the fight already. So I don't agree. Yeah, it I is. Think, I will I say. Put them away. Airplane people. People that have speakers on on like their bikes or something are running. Go fuck yourselves. I can think of like six others off the top of my head. The airing They're going to be very crowded camps. I will say, if you Google the Beijing bikini, just prepare yourself for an onslaught of pictures. There the sad are... part is they're all kind of that... posing. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how this started? Did you just rant? You were like Googling things. You were like Beijing. Beijing. Oh, that's a real thing. <laughs> no, there are people who go out there and they're, like, they're they're against the practice. And so they take all these pictures and it is, it's not a good look. But people have the right to, you know, 
jean shorts are still worn in the United States, Nick. But it, I saw worse. <laughs> I saw worse at Disney World two weeks ago. Yes, <laughs> that's. I mean, that's that's a, we 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 assume people have those rights, and in most places in the world, they don't have those rights. Yeah. We're exceptionally lucky that people can walk around like fucking slobs in this country. Um, but it's. It's, it's. I mean, come on, man. Like, look at yourself. Yeah, do do better. You look like you're eight months pregnant. Like, it's not. It's not a good. Look. Oh, the guy on the far right. The that's guy a really on the far right look. is terrible. But they all look like they should be posing in a calendar. There's a guy kind of sideways with his hand on his hip, yep. and then kind of holding his his belt buckle. And, and everybody kinda, looks sweaty. Yeah. Showing your belly sweaty is not a good look, Nick. Oof, God, and they're just so out of shape. You got the right. <laughs> you can all America. Oh, those that's guys are all thin by Amer- by the standards of the this American. This is true. South. This is true. <laughs> oh, this was fun, Nick. We we ended on a high note, right? Oh, this was a low brow at all. Oh, jeez, it's just so yeah. the thing. Well, if you like our patriotic discussions, um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, <laughs> um, now I lost my train of thought because I put that stupid song on. Um, beers that we try, Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics. The podcast, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Um, and then we are partnered with Predicted, which is a... <laughs> uh, just going to let this play for a second. Um, uh, Predicted is a real money political prediction market where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners who use the promo link uh, when opening up a new account uh, receive a twenty <laughs> match on their first deposit. So if you open up a twenty dollars account, Predicted will match that twenty dollars, giving you forty dollars to use. Let's use the promo link, predicted.org/promo/barstoolpaul20 uh, to check it out. Oh. Yeah, I just wanted to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else on this one, guys? Yeah, this is fun. Oh, I'm going to have to do a Beijing bikini. It's real hot in here right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>